0: Bob Murphy Show, episode 255. There's a tidal wave coming, what you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of the Bob Murphy Show the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. So first of all, as is my want lately, let me apologize for the long delay from the previous episode. And all I can say is, little baby, that's it. And in fact, you're going to hear more of the little tyke in this episode, I'm sure. I thought what I would do in this episode is I've been accumulating ideas for a show, but nothing was like big enough to warrant its own episode. And so I was like, you know what? Why don't I just do a potpourri? How's that? So we'll do a quick little response to some feedback I got on the Kanye West episode. So episode 253 that I did. and then. The main issues that I'm going to cover today are going to be, there was a study that came out where I guess some Federal Reserve economists looked at mortgage lending and they found some statistics to reduce the scope of possible discrimination in mortgage lending. And I want to talk about that. And then also there is this Philly gas station who hired armed guards wearing like Kevlar vests and whatnot. And, and they have like semi-automatic weapons and some people are concerned. And this is an area where I've thought and written a lot about. So I will chime in on that as well. Okay. So the quick one though, even though this is in the grand scheme, way more important than the other topics is the feedback on episode 253. So remember that's the one on Kanye West. And okay. So one's a sort of theological point and the other one's more of a secular point. So the theological issue. Again, I was in that episode, if you remember, I was at the tail end of it. I addressed head-on the Christians who, as like a fundamental part of their worldview, are very skeptical, suspicious of Jewish people. And I was saying, well, you know, that's kind of odd because according to your own doctrines and your holy book, they are God's chosen people. Jesus was born as a Jew, the son of Earthly parents who were devout Jews, the house of Judah and so forth, line of Judah, you know, 12 tribes of Israel. It's odd then that you would be saying, you got to watch out for these people because that's where all the mischief of this world comes from. If you say, I mean, setting aside the fact that God's son came from them as well and the means through which we've all been saved from the world's mischief, that's, I'm just saying that's kind of odd. So I got some pushback on that and. I actually meant to address this and I think (laughs) not to uh, see it's not the Jewish people. It's my infant son that's causing all these problems lately and I'm blaming him for everything. I really do think it's because he was fussing at the end. And so I just ended the episode. I meant to discuss there is the line in the gospel that says as Pilate wants to release Jesus or whatever. And the crowds say, no, no, let his, you know, and Pilate's like, well, I'm washing my hands of him. And they said, let his blood be upon us and our children. And it's, you know, the Jewish people talking, who he riled up by the chief priests. Okay. And so sort of minor point here, I suppose, or a quick point, but it's important, I think, even on its own terms, I guess I don't know that this is done, that God did that intentionally, but the standard Christian doctrine, you are saved by the blood of Jesus. So without context, without priming you to say, oh, remember how, The crowds wanted Jesus' blood on their hands and on their children. Without priming, if you just grab somebody who is an evangelical Christian who goes to church every week, and they sing a bunch of songs about, you know, what can save me? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And say, do you want Jesus' blood on you and covering your children? You would say, yes, that's how we're going to be saved. That's going to wash away my sins. That's going to make me white as snow is Jesus' blood. so, And also, too, I'm not playing word games. It's not like, oh, no, but when we say that, but we don't mean like we're responsible for his death. We just mean like the shedding of his blood is what's... No, it is part of standard Christian doctrine that your sin killed Jesus, right? It's not that there's people out there who are really bad and you're relatively good and Jesus had to die to wash away their sins and you're kind of going along for the ride. And, you know, good job, Jesus. You go take care of those sinners. at least we're not contributing to the problem. No, that's not standard Christianity at all. Your sin is just as repugnant to God as anybody else's, and certainly in the Calvinist tradition, but you don't even have to be a Calvinist to get what I'm saying. I don't know if I mentioned this last time, but in The Passion of the Christ, the movie Mel Gibson made to signify that it's our sin that nails Jesus to the cross, and it's not, you know, you can't blame the Italians. It's, oh, it was the Roman soldiers who did it, or... It was the chief priest who did it. So it's the Jews who killed Jesus. No, it's everybody. And the way Mel Gibson signified that was apparently in the movie, like, so you see the soldier going and then he raises his hand to then with the hammer to put the nail into Jesus' wrist that they stopped the camera or whatever. And Mel Gibson went in and it's actually him lifting the hammer up. Like, so you, you don't see his face. That would be kind of distracting in the movie, but it's apparently... Again, it's some other actor being the Roman soldier who lifts his hand up, but then apparently it's Mel Gibson switches it. So it's his hand. He's actually in the movie as a hand model, sort of like George Costanza. And it's him holding the hammer to, again, to signify what Mel Gibson wanted to show that it was my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. It's also ironic because Mel Gibson apparently got in trouble for that line, you know, that has inspired so much anti-Semitism through the ages of the Bible quoting the crowd saying, yes, let his blood be upon us and our children, that I think I have this right. Mel Gibson was urged just to not put that in the movie. And I think his compromise was they just said it in the language of the day. They didn't like say it in English. I don't think they translated it either, like subtitle. So people who knew what to listen for knew that, oh yeah, it's in there, but the regular crowd wouldn't have caught what that was okay the secular point so i got some pushback people saying recall i had made the arguments look at kanye was pointing out that all the people that screwed him over were all jewish and i said okay but probably they were all men too they all had two eyes i bet they all had working arms and yet kanye wasn't saying this why you gotta watch out for men even though some radical feminists would say well you should (laughs) And the radical feminists could say, we have a stronger leg to stand on than the anti-Semites do, because when we say men cause all the wars, that's basically literally true. Whereas to say, oh, Jews are starting all these wars, like, that's not literally, there's plenty of wars that don't have anything to do with Jewish people, right? They have a lot to do with neoconservatives who are Jewish, but not all, right? So I made that point. So in pushback to that, some people said things along the lines of, okay, Bob, but it's a relative issue. Men are half the population. They're a lot physically stronger. So it's not that surprising that most of the violence in the world is due to men, right? That's not shocking. Whereas when you look at the percentage, and I don't know what it is worldwide, I think it's in the U.S. something like 2%, our percentage of population is Jewish. And then you look at what the representation is in whatever media." or banking whatever finance things like that or i would say in nobel prizes it's also they're hugely overrepresented relative to their share in the population then you can see hey there's something fishy going on here murphy okay but i've just anticipated my response so even again on its own terms i get where you're coming from and yes that's a good comeback to my original critique of kanye but then I'm going to come back and say, okay, when does it make sense to think like that? Right? Like with the tiger, remember how I was saying, if you listen to that episode, that it's perfectly rational and you're not being bigoted against tigers. If you say, yeah, if I see a tiger come out of the brush and I'm staring at a tiger. I'm going to be on my guard. I'm high alert, even more than DEFCON three. I forget which way it goes. Is it DEFCON four is more ready than DEFCON three or is it DEFCON two? I don't remember, but because that's a perfectly rational response. It's, Even though technically, well, gee, if it escaped from the zoo and it's trained and maybe it just wants, you know, me to go open some wet cat food and give it something to eat, a little snack for Tony. No. Obviously we would we would all be on high alert figuring out what to do. By the way, I do have some strategies in mind for how I would deal with a large cat like that. We won't get into that now. So is that though a good analogy for what would happen? And so that's where the anti-Semites are coming from, I should say, I've had to adjust my views on this. I kind of thought a year ago that, yeah, I knew there were neo-Nazis out there, anti-Semites who were suspicious of the Jews and and that they were kind of just cranky people who, your stereotypes, that they had trouble fitting in and they gravitated towards this group and that gave them an identity and blah, blah, blah. And that may be true for like literal neo-Nazis, but... I had a bunch of people contacting me who were not raving lunatics and were just matter of factly explaining to me, no, wow, this is why we're suspicious of these people and you should be too. And, and you got to open your eyes. All right. So I guess one offshoot of that is I am more sympathetic now to the people accusing some people of dog whistling. Whereas before I just, it was ridiculous. Like who are they dog whistling to? And I realized, oh, actually there is a bigger audience for this than I would have thought a year ago. Because a bunch of them were pushing back against me on this Kanye West episode. Okay, so in any event, I still think they're wrong, even though their numbers are bigger than I thought. So I guess it boils down to, okay, you're about to interact with somebody and you learn the person is Jewish. Does that mean now you should think the person is more likely to mess with you or to do something devious than before? And... I would say no, because, or if you want to think like that, you can, but then you should also say, and it's also more likely that this is going to be a great opportunity and this person is going to be awesome. And you're going to be so glad you started collaborating with the person because look at how many high achieving Jewish people there are who have done great things that you love, whether it's in entertainment or finance or the sciences or math or whatever. So if there were a bunch of tigers that also made huge advances in chemistry and economics, then I guess that would be a better analogy. And then tiger jumps out and you're like, Whoa, it might eat me. But on the other hand, it may uh, invent a superior cryptocurrency too, I guess. But again, it's put it this way. At best, it seems these critiques, again, would apply to men just as well. So Walter Block has this thing where he uses sociobiology to try to explain it. But the simple fact is, on many types of social indicators, men are the outliers, whereas women tend to have a tighter distribution around the mean. And so like, when it comes to like, antisocial behavior, way more men end up in prison than women. And I don't think it's merely because the system is reluctant to put women in prison. Like Men commit more violent crimes than women do, statistically. And the other hand, men achieve more right? So it's kind of like the best men are the best at whatever the field is typically, whereas the worst men are the worst in whatever the issue is typically. So when it comes to who are the best FBI profilers to catch serial killers, probably men. And who are the worst serial killers? Probably men. All right. I remember Jerry Seinfeld once, somebody asked him, are men funnier than women or vice versa? And maybe the question was like, who's better comedians? I don't remember the exact phrasing, but he said, Well, I think it's like with cooking, women are better cooks than men on average, but the best chefs are men. And he thought, likewise with comedy, he thought women are funnier than men on average, but the best comedians are men. Okay. So whether you agree with this stuff or not, and also you don't need to think it has, so Walter Block thought it was biological. Like he was making some argument, like if you just think about it in terms of passing on genes, the men have to go impress the women the women are the ones that have to be gatekeepers. And so it's the men's job to go out and do something impressive, whereas the women kind of just have to not die. (laughs) So, right, if you're just like pure passing on copies of your DNA. And so if that's the incentive structure, and it's a very Walter Block-esque way of looking at things, then yeah, the men adopt high risk, high reward strategies, whereas the women don't. He doesn't mean like consciously, he means like, natural selection would favor. And so that's how he comes up. See, so there you go. That's why to him, perfectly straightforward that you see these results where men tend to earn more money than women, but also men end up in prison more. Men die of heart attacks more because they have more stress. I saw a thing that somebody from AEI recently shared about the most dangerous jobs in America. And it was, these numbers aren't perfect, but this is close. This is the spirit of what it was. It was like the top 15 most dangerous jobs. And I think that the worst one was like logging and every single one of them, the proportion of men in that occupation was higher than 90%. It was 90 something. The first digit was a nine. And in terms of like all the workplace deaths in that year, the year was like 2020 or 2021, 90 plus percent were men. Okay. So yeah, men tend to earn more, but that's one reason they earn more is because men tend to work in more dangerous jobs and other things equal, a job that's more dangerous pays more, right? It's more dangerous to be a cab driver. It's more dangerous to be a logger. It's more dangerous to work in a coal mine than to be a librarian or a school teacher or a nurse. So other things equal, you know, adjusting for experience and education level and stuff like that, that those former jobs would tend to pay more. And then if it just so happens for whatever reason that men work in those occupations more and women work more in the other ones, That's partly why, if you just do a basic average, men earn more than women. Okay, so just to round out that train of thought then, in case I wasn't driving home the point, the big picture, saying at best, people can argue that, ah, yes, for whatever reason, Jewish people tend to be superlative in pursuits having to do with their mind. And so... If they're on the good side of the force, they do really awesome stuff. And if they turn to the dark side, they're also more accomplished as villains than Gentiles tend to be, all right? But from that, it doesn't follow that therefore you should have certain built-in hostility towards them. Or if you do, okay, then you should side with the radical feminists who rail against the patriarchy and don't like men. But what really makes no sense is if you're... An anti-Semite for those reasons, but then say, not all men, when somebody complains about some guy who sexually harassed somebody on the job or something, Then that, <laughs> that's kind of being inconsistent, put it that way. Okay, let's transition now to this article about mortgage lending, because actually it's somewhat, well, in some respects, it's similar, especially to the, what I just was talking about, the jobs, the occupational hazards. So let me go ahead and pull this up. So this is from The Economist. It says, uh, and when, when was this running? This is actually back on November 24th, this ran. So I'll just read a little bit of it and then explain the outrage on Twitter. So the title is, Racial Discrimination in Mortgage Lending Has Declined Sharply in America. And then here's the subtitle, and this is what made everyone flip out control for factors like credit scores and troubling racial gaps almost disappear. Now, I think they might have added that word almost. I feel like the original subtitle was a bit more provocative. Let me see if there's an update at the bottom to say. Okay, I don't see anything at the bottom talking about we edited this. So maybe that was already there. But in any event, I saw an economist share this and she said something like, so she shared it on Twitter and then her comment that she put in quotes, I can't remember. But she just said something like, if you control for X, then the correlation between X and Y disappears. And she got a bunch of high fives and everybody was rolling their eyes and like, oh my God, I can't believe, ha ha. If you control for calories, then eating at McDonald's doesn't make you gain weight. Things like that. Okay, so their point was, this is stupid. And then I even saw, so these were like, Left of center people, typically, I believe. But the economist that I saw share this definitely was. But I even saw some people like associated with libertarian-ish think tanks also railing against this and saying things like, wow, I can't believe this is coming from the economist of all places. Whoever came up with that headline ought to be fired. And stuff like that. Like just, whoa. All right. So anyway, let me just read a couple excerpts from the article just so you get the idea. And then I'll expand upon what was going on. Starts out, Atlanta's black neighborhoods are under attack. And that's in quotation marks. So wrote the editors of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in May of 1988 upon the release of, quote, The Color of Money, a series of articles documenting racial disparities in mortgage lending in Georgia's most populous city. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. Much has changed. (laughs) Sorry, folks, for the delay here. I'm trying to, there's this link saying, listen to this story that's covering the text and I can't get it to go away. So, so much has changed in the 35 years since, I can't tell you exactly what because there's a big pop-up blocking it. Okay. A recent analysis by Bloomberg News found that Wells Fargo, a bank, approved less than half of refinancing applications filed by black homeowners in 2020 compared with nearly three quarters of those filed by white customers. Okay, and then there's a graphic with a sort of play on words. This is getting to know you and know is N-O. It says U.S. mortgage loan denial rates. 2021 is a percentage by applicants race or ethnicity. And so for home purchase loans, black applicants, it looks like it's about 15 or 16% of a denial rate, whereas Hispanic, it's about 11 Asian, it's about eight. And white, it looks like six or seven. All right, so again, top line, white applicants for a home purchase loan get denied about 7% of the time. Blacks, it's basically double that in 2021, right? So that prima facie, people think, is sign of rampant discrimination in the U.S. mortgage market. And that's the context in which now we're going to say, wait, there's this new study. Let's see what the other half of the story is. But new research by economists at the Federal Reserve Board suggests that such discrimination is less widespread than it was 30 years ago. Using a data set of nearly 9 million loan applications submitted in 2018 and 19. The authors found that 17% of black applicants were turned down compared with 8% of white applicants. But after controlling for the results of automated underwriting systems, which reflect the underwriting guidelines of government-sponsored entities like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and cannot take race into account, this gap was cut in half. After other relevant risk characteristics, such as credit scores were controlled for, this figure fell to less than two points, a result that the authors describe as, quote, significant progress. Okay, so, and let me just read the last paragraph here just so you see they didn't just say see problem solved they say experts point out that although mortgage underwriting systems are becoming less biased the data fed into them may still reflect historical discrimination these data can be improved says ms goodman quote if the issue is credit scores let's figure out how to make credit scores better and more reflective of people's true credit worthiness end quote overall though the picture is one of progress and now a quote from a different person I think it's fair to say that there's still some discrimination, but it's not very common, says John Yinger, an economics professor at Syracuse University. Okay, so that's how these things go. And this isn't the first such study. There have been other ones. I've seen data on looking at default rates. Okay, so go the other way. If it's true that when banks decide whether to give an applicant a mortgage or not, If they're unfairly hesitant to give one to a Black applicant because of racial bias, then what you should see in the aggregate is that Black people default less on their mortgages than white people do, right? Because on the front end, on the origination side, if the bankers are being too stingy, that means they're pickier. They only give the loans to more qualified black applicants, other things equal than to white counterparts. And so then you would expect, if that's what's going on, you would expect the black mortgage obtainers to default less frequently than their white counterparts. But you don't see that. Again, I don't have the studies at my fingertips, but the studies that I saw said that results were largely equal. I mean, they weren't literally equal, but in terms of the noise and the data and whatever, they were pretty close. So there was no obvious systematic bias on the origination side. Incidentally, just that technique, I saw that in a different paper when I was at NYU. I didn't see the, guy, I didn't see the authors present it, but like there was this table at NYU where the papers that were going to be presented that week, they would have copies printed out so that you could grab it and read it ahead of time before the person showed up to present. So we used to grab them because they would only print on one side. And so they were awesome for getting free blank paper to do your problem sets on when you're doing homework. So that's, I mean, we would read them too because we were scholars. And something, but what I thought was really interesting that what the person looked at was they wanted to test for racial bias in traffic stops and whether your car gets searched for drugs. And so just headline statistic or whatever, top line statistic, yes, the cops, and I forget what the jurisdiction was. I don't know if it was like the US. I don't think it was the, I think it was a local, like they just had access to some database of, some particular jurisdiction like New York city or something like that. For some reason, I want to say it was like the New Jersey turnpike, but I could be wrong. But anyway, so yes, if you just asked and you could derive statistics that sound bad saying things like, Oh, if you're driving while black, you're three times more likely to be pulled over and have your car searched than if you're white. And then even controlling for if you're a male who's in your twenties, still, if you're black, you know, the probably the disparity you probably even hire. All right, so Jesse Jackson types would take that kind of statistic and say, well, "What more do you need?" So what these people did is a very economisticy thing. They looked and said, "Okay, of the cars searched, if you're a black driver versus a white driver, what percentage of the time do the cops actually find drugs?" And of course, we mean illegal narcotics, we don't mean aspirin or caffeine. And they found the rates were roughly equal again within the Statistical variation from the sample. And so they concluded to say, this looks like the cops are doing their job. That if they were unfairly stopping and searching black motorists more just because of irrational prejudice, then you would expect to see a lower percentage of the time them actually finding drugs in the car compared to white drivers. And yet you don't see that. And so if the goal is to maximize drug interception, then they've adopted what looks to be like an optimal strategy. Right again, that's very economistic way of looking at it and talking. They did acknowledge. They said, "What now? What could happen is maybe they look more carefully. Like if they're really sure that the black eye driver has drugs on him, maybe they look more carefully. Whereas the white person, if he hides it somewhere, that's more of a cursory thing. Or they could plant the drugs." So there's that possibility too. But still, they're just saying, given the data we have, it's consistent with the hypothesis that there isn't rampant bias and that the reason you're more likely to get searched if you're a black driver is that for whatever reason, they're more likely to have drugs in the car. And so if that's the case, then yes, they should get searched more often. If again, your goal is to maximize the amount of illegal drugs the cops catch, right? So that's, Similar type of thing. So here, again, going back to the mortgage example, it's the other way around that if there were unfair, well, no, it's, it's similar. If they were unfairly stringent in their granting of mortgages, then the default rate would be lower for black homeowners than for whites. And that, again, in the other study. That, so this study that I'm talking about now isn't looking at default rates. This is just looking at applications and they're saying, once you adjust for credit score and things like that, then the bias goes away. So in other words, just to give an idea of what they're doing, they're saying, yeah, if you just say black applicants and white applicants for mortgages, what's the percentage that are denied? It's more than twice for blacks. But if you say, and this isn't exactly how they do it, but just to give a flavor, oh, white applicants and black applicants who have at least $20,000 down payment Now what happens to the denial rates and they get closer together and you say white and black applicants who have at least $20,000 down payment and whose credit score is within this certain range. Now what happens? And they're saying now it gets to, I'm making this up, but the whites get denied at 5% of the time and black applicants only get denied 7% of the time. Right. So that the gap between those two has shrunk considerably. That's the idea. So it didn't completely go away. But when they correct for obvious factors that would influence your willingness to grant a mortgage to somebody, then the apparent gap shrinks. And again, you see this stuff, I alluded to it with the pay arguments like, between men and women. But yeah, you just ask big picture, men and women who gets paid more, you get one number and that's where they come up with like, oh, men get paid 40 or well, women only get paid, whatever it is, 78 cents to a man's dollar, whatever the number is lately. But when you say, okay, what about if you control for years of on the job and then all of a sudden it jumps, now it's women get paid and it's a higher amount and you control for education in the relevant field and it gets closer. You control for hours work per week, it gets closer. You control for never taken off to go have kids. And so among academics, I believe, so this was true. 10 years ago. I don't know if it's still true, but if you look at academics, I think if they have a PhD who have never been married, then women earn more than men do. Like if those are the only things you control for, you're just looking at academics. And I think academic means you have a PhD. Maybe it's got to be teaching in like an academic job. I don't know if they meant that, but academics who have never been married, if that's the only corrections you use, the population of women who fit those criteria earns more on average than the men and so you could say among academics who have never been married men only get paid 92 cents to a woman's dollar or whatever the number is which makes sense because of affirmative action other things equal and i've been on hiring committees like i've seen this in my own eyes that if you have an applicant to you know you're working at a school and you have an open tenure track spot that's open and there's a female applicant who's otherwise just as qualified as the men, you totally want her getting the spot that just looks better, that does all sorts of things for you. So they're sought after. All right, so back to the mortgage thing. So like I say, it surprised me the pushback. I understand how like normal people reading this article would be upset, but it surprised me that so many trained economists were upset, and they weren't just saying, oh, I don't like the headline. Like They seemed like they were mad at the fact that the Federal Reserve economists engaged in the study in the first place. Their point was, oh, just because you control for credit score and then all of a sudden the bias seems to go away, doesn't mean there is no bias. You just displaced it. You're doing whack-a-mole. It just means the credit scores are where the bias comes in. Okay. So one thing, they didn't prove that. And for some of them, they were merely making the point that, oh, but Bad credit scores are correlated with being black. And so therefore, end of story, there's still bias. When it's like, no, you would have to then also go and show that they were unfair credit scores, right? So yeah, it's sort of this conflation that people think to show that there's a disparate outcome is the same thing as showing there was unfair prejudice involved or you know, unfair discrimination. And those aren't the same thing. For example, if because of historical, well, let me put it this way, even if what you want to do is make up for past injustices or possibly current injustices, still, you need to know where's it coming from. So if you see that, yeah, the outcome of this complex system is that black people get denied mortgages more frequently than white people do, and what can we do to fix that? Okay, you need to know well, how is that result happening? What's the causal factors involved? And so if it's actually that mortgage lending really is colorblind and it's that, oh, because of legitimate factors like creditworthiness or how many assets you have, things like that, or what's your income, if those factors tend to be worse for black applicants than whites, but the actual mortgage issuance process is totally fair given those starting conditions, well, then you know you don't need to tinker with the banking system, right? You don't need to put in policies in place to induced banks to make loans to black applicants that they're really not qualified for. And actually that was some of the trouble with the housing bubble years when the Bush administration got into trouble with some of that stuff. Incidentally, I think some of that's overblown. I, you know, if I had to just pick some, I'd blame the federal reserve in terms of what caused the crazy housing bubble in the two thousands. But certainly that stuff didn't help the community reinvestment act and all that stuff. All right. So again, you're not doing anybody favors by, having banks make loans to black applicants that really are too big. Just like affirmative action programs for college are not helpful in the long run, right? If you take like the smartest black applicants and then put them into a school that's one notch above where they really ought to be going, that just means they're going to be outmatched and get worse grades, right? So like kids that would really get straight A's at a second tier school if they're black or Hispanic, and therefore they end up in Harvard and MIT, then they're not going to be able to do as well in class because it's going to be too hard. And so they might get C's or whatever. And then that just fuels the cycle. Then people say, oh, it's because the professors at Harvard and MIT are a racist. And the same thing here, I did see that response on the studies about looking at mortgage default rates that they were saying, oh, well, it's because the loan officer's work with white mortgage holders more than they do with black people. You know, they just, there's foreclosed like, right, you're behind and get out. So that's why they were saying the data show roughly equal default rates when really they were pickier in granting the mortgage to the black applicant. And then the black applicant defaults as much as the white because they're harder on the black mortgage holder when he or she falls behind in payments. Okay. So maybe that's true, but again, They're having to explain away the prima facie evidence to show that it's not the situation isn't what you originally thought. Okay, so let me just step back for a minute, though. And what I didn't see in any of this, well, finish the train of thought. So again, even if your overriding goal were to equalize the outcome, still you'd want to pinpoint where is this coming from. So if the issue is bankers are racist and they just have these attitudes and they really are just misjudging, well then. You'd have one set of policies that would make sense and are ways to remedy the situation. But if it turned out that no, once you get to the point where the person goes to the bank and applies for a mortgage, it's pretty fair given what the starting position is of all the different applicants. Well, then you don't need to worry about the banking stuff. Then you could just say, okay, here's the issue that for historical reasons, the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and so on. And I would argue crappy public schools and other government policies that may ostensibly have been to benefit underprivileged groups but end up perpetuating a cycle of poverty and breaking up their families and so on that that's why they find themselves not starting out at the same point in the race and that's why they end up losing the race okay so if you want to address those things okay but again you need to know where is this unequal outcome coming from i mean to switch to a different example black people tend to be overrepresented in the nba than white people is that because all of the owners and the personnel involved in making hiring decisions are racist against white people. I mean, it is possible that that's a little bit of it that people just assume white people aren't as good at basketball as black people are. And if you're out looking for the next superstar, you think you're looking for a black guy and it's harder for a white guy to, to break through those expectations or gee, they just think I'm supposed to be a shooting guard or something. I can't get them to see that actually I should be point guard. Because they're picturing somebody else for that. Maybe a little bit, but in general, would you say that that explains most of it? No, I think it's they want to win. And for whatever reason, the best basketball players at any given time in the United States right now are overwhelmingly have black skin versus white skin. Okay. And it's not due to prejudice on the part of the NBA and its officials and personnel as to why when you look at a televised game, most of the people on the court at any given time are not lily white. All right. So you can have outcomes that are disproportionate in terms of people's representation in the population. And it's not necessarily proof that there was unfair stereotypes or discrimination at work to produce that outcome. And if there is, if still you want to pinpoint the exact source of it. So even on its own terms, I don't get why there was such hostility towards this. And so then, like I say, people, they said, oh, well, yeah, they corrected for credit scores and then the disparity drops away, but it's because the credit scores are all, like I said, some of them just merely said they're, they're correlated racially. And so, end of story, this is stupid. Others were more sophisticated and said they're racist. In other words, black people with the same history of transactions and you know repayment of credit card debt and things like that, same record in terms of making whatever, their electricity payments, get a worse credit score than white people do. With the same history, and so therefore, they're saying the credit score system is itself racist, and so then if the banks rely on those credit scores, that's where the you know, racism's coming into play. So they said that at least is more sophisticated than just a raw. Oh, hey, because black people tend to have worse credit scores, you didn't fix the problem, and this is stupid. Okay, so there again, you'd want to investigate and say, well, why would that be the case? All right, and so big picture, let me just step back here. Even though it's sort of an article of faith in these conversations that the big banks and the credit rating agencies would benefit from being unfair to black people. No, that's not the case. In general, why would a bank want to, like if you're a shareholder at a bank, if what you want is to maximize the rate of return on your money, your investment in the capital in the bank, when they're going out and making mortgages, you want them To correctly assess the likelihood of repayment, you wouldn't want them to charge a higher interest rate or be less likely to give a loan to a black applicant who is just as likely to repay the loan and stay current with it as a white applicant. If it turned out that in practice, your loan officers who are like your agents working on your behalf, deploying your capital to loan applicants, if it turned out that in the aggregate, year after year, the black applicants had a lower default rate than the white applicants, other things equal, you know, like if the sizes of the loans and stuff you're holding equal, then you are making less profit than you otherwise would. You would benefit if you tweaked that outcome. You said, you know what? Next year, tweak your algorithm or whatever it is that you do to come up with your lending decisions and make fewer loans to white people on the margin and more loans to black people on the margin. And then what would that do in terms of the overall mortgage portfolio that the bank's carrying? It would lower the default rate if, as we stipulated, the black mortgage recipients defaulted at a lower rate than the whites, right? That's not maximizing profit from the bank's point of view. You should lend more to the black applicants then and less to the white to lower the default rate on your overall portfolio. And you would keep doing that until the default rates were equal. So that's why I'm saying it does not at all benefit the shareholder if the bank is engaging in discriminatory lending policies. If what you want to do is earn the highest rate of return on your money, keeping risk constant. So similarly for credit rating agencies, what's their business is they need to give accurate guidance to their customers who use those credit scores. And so why would the institutions that use those or firms that are hiring people or whatever, that are using those credit scores, why would they want them to be inaccurate? It doesn't help them any. They need those data in order to make accurate judgments. And so given that, then why would the credit rating agencies benefit from unfairly dinging people of certain races or ethnicities? Now, having said all that, just because there's, in a free market, institutional reasons to stamp out prejudice like that, that doesn't mean in reality, it will all be wiped away, right? If people just have stereotypical attitudes, then they might not be able to correct for them. But my point is, it's not capitalism per se. And for example, you know, if most of the banks, because they have a bunch of old school, good old boy network people in their ranks who are making decisions like that, if that's true of the industry, well, then there's scope for a competitor to rise up Either because it's literally owned by minorities or just it's owned by people in the majority who have more enlightened views to outcompete them. Right. So again, capitalism, freedom of association, laissez-faire doesn't guarantee equitable outcomes, but it has the incentives to try to get them as close as possible. And it has inbuilt punishment for people who deviate from those outcomes. So let me switch. So this is an argument I made when it comes to hiring decisions. And I made this in my book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism. So you've got two applicants and you're advertising for a job that pays $100,000. And so the first applicant is a white guy and his productivity, you think, is $110,000. By which I mean, all things considered, by you adding this person to your company, you're Profit at the end of the year before taking into account his salary is going to be one hundred ten thousand dollars higher than it otherwise would be. So, are you willing to hire that person and pay a hundred thousand to him? Yes, you are because you're making ten thousand. All right, you have a black applicant whose productivity is one hundred fifteen thousand, and you don't hire the black applicant. You hire the white guy because you're racist. So, his productivity, black applicant, really was one hundred fifteen, but you don't see that because you think, oh, they steal from me, or. They're going to stir up trouble in the cafeteria, whatever. And so you only perceive his productivity as 95000 So you think, I would lose money if I hired that guy. So you hire the white guy. So in a free market, you're allowed to do that. And even if there's not like a public campaign against you, like if you know, somehow people realize your hiring practices were biased, still, there's an inbuilt automatic penalty. You just lost $5,000 because of your unfair prejudice, right? Because you, for the same amount of money by stipulation, you could have hired somebody whose productivity was 115,000 instead of someone whose productivity was 110,000. So you just automatically got fined in terms of opportunity cost, five thousand dollars, because of your racism. And so notice the worse your prejudice, like if the black applicant was really worth 180,000, then you just implicitly lost seventy thousand because of your pigheadedness. Okay, so again, you don't need to have government agencies. There's automatic inbuilt tendencies. Now again. To point these things out, it doesn't mean you've solved all the problems. It's just isolating where they're coming from. So if the issue is, oh, actually, the genuine, correctly measured productivity of black workers tends to be lower, and that's because, oh, they come from broken families, and their schools were terrible, and there's high crime in the neighborhoods where they grew up, and so you know they can't really be expected to study as much, or they had trouble getting hired and entry-level jobs because there's a high minimum wage. And that stuff's all true. Or there's gang warfare on their streets. And that's all true. But notice a lot of those things are caused by bad government policies. And the answer is not to mess with what companies pay workers or to stand over their shoulder and second-guess their hiring decisions, like directly try to deal with what the causes are. Maybe the last thing I'll end with is just to try to drive home the point if you say, hey, there's inequality in America, and so what we should do to fix that is every merchant, when a black person walks up and wants to buy something and hands over like a $10 bill, that should really count as $12. Whereas when white people hand over a $10 bill, that should count as 10 Or put another way, if a black person wants to buy something that's $120, they should only be charged 100 This should be taken out of their checking account when they swipe their debit card. And that's how we're going to deal with the effects of slavery and discrimination and current racism is just have that at the checkout. Whenever you buy something, there's going to be an inbuilt racial adjustment. I think most people would realize that that would be crazy. I mean, that just would lead to all sorts of problems, it'd be like punishing certain merchants that had nothing to do with it, that kind of thing. And that would just be nutty that, no, if what you want to do is give more purchasing power to black people, then go ahead and give them reparations or something. That would make way more sense than what that policy was. And so I'm saying, yeah, likewise, If the issue is because they have not as much assets, worse credit scores, things like that. And that's why there is a disparity in mortgage lending. The solution is not to come in and lean on the banks to go ahead and approve loans to black applicants that they really don't want to give them. That's not really addressing the problem. That's just introducing more problems, right? But in general, studying these issues and trying to figure out the sources of the actual bias is necessary. And so again, I was just baffled by the pushback this particular article was getting. All right, we'll wrap up there. As it turned out, it took me a lot longer to get through those topics than I thought. So why don't we go ahead and defer the Philly gas station, private security. That'll be a nice juicy topic to cover on its own. For the links for this episode, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 255. Thanks everybody. And I'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of the Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.